This is Knox Williams, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Tune in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. We've got a great interview queued up for you today. This was actually one of the first interviews I did back in the fall, and I apologize for the delay in release, but I sat down with Knox Williams Knox and I sat down and had a great conversation about some of the beginnings of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center um, when it got its start way back in the 1980s and um, some of the precursors to, to the inception of that as well as how the, the program has evolved over time. We're going to jump right into the interview here, but first... I'd like to just give a big shout out to the sponsors of the show, MND Safety, Ten Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. We couldn't do it without you, and we truly appreciate your continued support. MND Safety, if you, if you don't know, is the global parent company that designs and produces and installs and maintains some of the best remote avalanche control systems out there on the market. Uh, the Gaz-X, the Gaz-Flex, the Obel-X, and the Daisy Bell gas exploders are making avalanche control management uh, safer and more effective across the world. So go on over and check out uh, their website at mnd.com. We know you all have lots of choices to make in life. And perhaps one of the most important choices is what beverage you reach for after a great day of shredding, whatever type of shredding you're going to do. We would urge you to choose Ten Barrel Brewing. Ten Barrel has such a great variety of different beers out there, many of them in cans, which is very conducive to our active lifestyles out and about. Whether it's the Crush Sour Beers, which is super refreshing on a long, hot summer day, or the Hazy Trail Juicy Indian Pale Ale. Choose the beer that helps support this podcast. Ten Barrel Brewing. Thanks for all your support over the years. We couldn't do it without you. And of course, Interwest Insurance. Thanks again for your support as well for your commercial and personal insurance needs. Head on over to IWINS.com. Interwest Insurance has you covered. Okay, here we go. Jumping right in with Knox Williams. All right, welcome to the show, Knox. It's an honor to have you on the Avalanche Hour podcast this morning. Uh, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm appreci- very appreciative to have a chance to uh, to talk with you. Yes. 
All right. Knox Williams is a pioneer in public avalanche forecasting. He played a critical role in the establishment of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. His strong interest in meteorology from a young age brought him to the winter realm when he enrolled in a master's degree program in atmospheric science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Through working with other pioneers at the time, Knox developed a way to organize snow, weather, and avalanche data in order to better understand the avalanche phenomena and convey the dangers to the public in an effective way. Knox was the co-founder of the CAIC in 1983 and remained the director of the center until retiring in 2005. As an educator, forecaster, writer, political lobbyist, and mentor to many, Knox has certainly saved lives through his forecasts and helped pave the way to where our community stands today. Knox, that was just a, a, a brief introduction, and I'm, I'm sure I missed some things there. But I was hoping you could talk to, to me and the listeners a bit about your, your background. Where did you come from and the path that brought you to, the, to a, a long career in avalanche forecasting? <laughs> I, well, I would be glad to. I look back and see where I began and where I ended up. Nobody could have forecasted that. But I uh, grew up in Austin, Texas, math major, University of Texas, wanted to leave. So I went to, uh, got a job with Boeing in Seattle, uh, lasted two years there. But that's when I learned uh, to ski, uh, being for Texas, I'd never had on skis before going there. And uh, then uh, I had an opportunity to go to grad school, as you mentioned, in atmospheric science at uh, CSU in Fort Collins. So left there, got my degree um, in tropical meteorology. Hmm. Um, was all set to take a job at the Hurricane Center in Miami. When I heard that the Forest Service in my hometown right there, Fort Collins, was looking for a meteorologist to uh, work in the um, avalanche forecast program, or to start an avalanche forecast program. Went over there, talked uh, to the two people, Pete Martinelli and Art Judson, that would be my superiors. I got the job. I learned later why they uh, chose me as opposed to people who had experience in snow and avalanches. And they told me that it would be easier to train me without having preconceived conceptions about snow and avalanches as other applicants would, ha would have. So they wouldn't have to break me of any bad habits. Anyway, I got the job and um, wow, <laughs> I was a lucky guy. <laughs> And so that was like nineteen uh, seventy. Uh, no, that was uh, actually uh, exactly uh, because I was getting out of uh, school at uh, CSU uh, in the spring of seventy, and uh, I started my job in September of seventy um, with the uh, Avalanche Project with the Forest Service in Fort Collins. So, yeah. Um, and wow, what an education I had. Uh, if I could jump right in and, and give credit to uh, Art Judson, who is the person who really got me hired. 
he became my mentor. And for 10 years, uh, he taught me so much about avalanches and um, gave me the opportunity to uh, build this network of weather stations around the western U.S., which became the Westride Avalanche Network. So I got to travel uh, to sites, many of them ski areas, backcountry spots, um, national uh, parks, uh, all around the western U.S., including Alaska. So uh, it was a, a great start before I'd done any forecasting whatsoever. Um, if I could, if I could just interject there, Knox, what, what was the reasoning for, for the avalanche project? How did that come about through the forest service, um, with, with Art uh, and Pete? Why did that start? Yeah, that started because of a rash of avalanche accidents, uh, fatal avalanches, uh, in Colorado, uh, and around the Western U.S., and uh, a big one, um, well, uh, it was 1962, uh, a, seven homes were destroyed near the small town of Twin Lakes, Colorado. Seven homes destroyed and seven people killed. Mm. And at that point, uh, got to thinking, uh, Martinelli and Judson got to thinking about the need for forecasting. That accident was followed up by several along Colorado highways that killed a motorist and later on one that killed a plow driver. And so there was a need for um, our forecast program. Judson went to uh, Switzerland, uh, observed how they did it uh, out of the Avalanche Center in Davos brought the idea back, and um, I was hired uh, when uh, they got funding to pick up an extra uh, person and start uh, the Colorado Avalanche Warning Program, and that became a blueprint for other avalanche centers uh, around the western U.S. and Alaska. Part of this, obviously, is good data collection. So my first task was to create forms, uh, large uh, handwritten forms, where monthly weather could be recorded on a, on a daily basis uh, and avalanches recorded on another form. Uh, because of my uh, programming skills, which also helped me get the job in the first place, uh, the data came to me from all around the western U.S. Uh, I processed it um, and then sent back uh, a newsletter, monthly newsletter, uh, to everybody involved in snow and avalanches in the U.S., hundreds of people on that list. And uh, that's when the uh, Westwide Avalanche Network really took hold. And Fort Collins, the Forest Service there, was the focal point for the repository of all the data. So Knox, when you got there, when you got to the Rocky Mountain Range and Experiment Station, which which correct me if I'm wrong, but that was in Fort Collins, um, was it was there quite a backlog of data? 
I'm just imagining you you fresh out of your master's program <laughs> and you come in and Art and Peter like, oh, this is great. We got this guy that can sift through this these stacks of papers of data. Was that the case? Yeah. That was not the case. Uh-huh. There was no data. <laughs> um, and and uh, the only, uh, you know, there are occasional reports written, and uh, they didn't even show up at the Rocky Mountain uh, Experiment Station because it was not yet the, uh, the national hub for avalanche research. Mm-hmm. There was uh, research going on at Alta, Utah, with a, a couple of real good guys over there. But Alta and Fort Collins were it uh, up until uh, the oh, early '70s. So the the data coming in uh, built the database. It showed the need uh, to have other uh, avalanche centers around the country, and so. Uh, the the um, Avalanche Center that Judson uh, really uh, began was called the Colorado Avalanche Warning Program. I was Judson's sidekick because I didn't know an avalanche from a snowball when I got into the business. Uh, but then my bigger job was to collect data that started coming in uh, essentially in the year of 72, I believe. And... Uh, then very quickly, as I mentioned, uh, Avalanche Centers popped up in Salt Lake City and Seattle. But there are an awful lot of individuals out there, whether they are ski patrollers or snow rangers or um, oh, national park uh, people who filled out the data form. So we built this network of at least 50 sites uh, around the western U.S. And... The glue that uh, may pulled everybody together was the the monthly avalanche notes that I put together, which was a, a composite of the weather and avalanche data, uh, and a usually a two-page narrative of important event, events that had gone on for the previous month. When I started gathering data from uh, around the Western U.S. in the Westwide Network. Indeed, people did start calling in just to let me know of big events that had happened in their area, whether it was the Sierra, the Cascades, or the Chugach Mountains of Alaska. And um, so we just became uh, the hub for gathering all of this data. And uh, I mean, it was a lot. Uh, That program lasted uh, from the early 70s up until 1983 and then it pretty well started dying after that point and at that point uh there was an that was the time of the inception of the caic correct that's right uh because what happened 1983 um don't want to be political but those were reagan years and reagan downsized government uh, the avalanche project uh, that I was part of, I got uh, rift reduction in force, a kind phrase for saying fired uh, <laughs> or dismissed, um, and was unemployed for a year the whole time trying to rebuild uh, an avalanche center for the state of Colorado. Two years later, the entire avalanche research program uh 
was uh, wiped out as well because of budget cuts. So all of the research went away, and that left uh, avalanche centers uh, that started uh, popping up, as I said, in the early 70s. Uh, avalanche centers became uh, the local hubs for data uh, and uh, some research projects. So Knox, in 83, during some of these budget cuts and reduction in force, um, it seems like the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, what was to become that, um, was was looking for a host agency. It was looking for a home. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes. Uh, myself, uh, Betsy Armstrong, that was working for the uh, CAWP Colorado Avalanche Morning. Uh, like I say, we lost uh, our jobs. Uh, then the strangest thing happened. Um, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, there was a cloud seeding program uh, going on in Colorado uh, in the 80s. And it language uh, that allowed people to uh, seed clouds said that no seeding could be done when the avalanche danger was rated high. Well, the Colorado Department of Natural Resources had been relying on us as avalanche forecasters to tell them when the danger was high. Now, we weren't there anymore. So the Department of Natural Resources in Colorado said, we will take you in uh, and create uh, a new avalanche uh, forecasting service, but we have no money to give you. If you can raise the money, uh, you have a job. Well, Betsy and I beat the bushes and we got money uh, from the highway department and ironically from the Forest Service. The same people that kicked us out uh, half a year earlier. Turns out they had let off so many people uh, because of budget cuts, uh, or just uh, the need for budget cuts, they had more money than they could spend. So they became, the Forest Service, the largest funder of this new Avalanche Center, which was named the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. But now it was a state program, not a federal program. Through your tenure at the CAIC, was, was that the last was that the first and the last money that was was funded through the Forest Service? Uh, no. The Forest Service remained a funder uh, for the CAIC uh, forever. Mm -hmm. And part of their justification and, and ability to do this is that the snow rangers, who are Forest Service employees and scattered around uh, mountain communities, uh, were fairly tightly linked to the Avalanche Center. Mm -hmm. And so the Forest Service could justify sending some funding to the CAIC so that we could continue helping their snow rangers. Okay. Um, Knox, talk about the, I, I really want to get into these blue-green sheets because I think there's a bit of a lost art these days in, in um, analog record keeping. Right. What what were the blue green sheets? 
there, they, these were uh, big spreadsheets. Uh, they were like what, maybe uh, I don't know, fifteen inches by twenty inches special pads. Each uh, a month in the weather words, and uh, the weather was blue. Avalanche was the green sheet, so they're separate sheets altogether. Um, I designed the sheet to fit the uh, 80 column uh, computer card uh, layout. And so on a daily basis, the blue weather forms were filled out by ski patrollers, snow rangers, uh, as I say, national park personnel, uh, at least 50 sites around the western U.S. The other form was the green avalanche form with one line, horizontal line, 80 columns uh, per avalanche. And this gave everything on the uh, characteristics of that avalanche, whether it was a loose snow avalanche or a slab, its size, what the trigger was, uh, what, uh, where, what type of terrain, uh, the aspect, um, the depth of fracture, the width of fracture, um, how far it ran, whether there were any uh, damage or uh, injury or death to anybody because of this. So that data was filled out, came to me, I processed it, kept permanent records, would send the records back to uh, these individual sites so that they could uh, have their own data. And uh, then I did whatever I could with it. The monthly report called Lynch Notes was one thing that I did. The other was uh, data for uh, analyzing large storms uh, and data for investigating appetite. So with these sheets, you said there were 50 sites that you're gathering data from. And, and, and this started the, what is still going on through the CAIC with data collection of, of especially avalanche accidents, right? Correct. Yes. Um, the, the, the blue and green, for, green forms uh, went away, uh, like I say, in 1983, uh, no, some years after that. But with the uh, formation of avalanche centers in most Western uh, U.S. states, uh, there was uh, you know, still programs that were gathering their own data. And uh, the Westwide eventually dissolved, but all of these various offices uh, for avalanche forecasting around the U.S. just began their own uh, data collection one way or another. Knox, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of the some of the early challenges of learning how to write an avalanche forecast to convey this information of the avalanche phenomenon to the public who might not know anything about snow or avalanches, but could be in harm's way, whether they're recreating or or potentially even just on a Colorado highway. Right, right. Well, yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of skill, might even want to call it an art form, 
for writing a message that was going to be broadcast either on a hotline or in Colorado, uh, there were uh, two radio stations that called us in the morning and we would read our daily forecast and then those radio stations would broadcast that. So you had to be concise. Uh, you had a limited time to get your message across. Um, and you had to understand the audience. And that meant often not using vernacular. Uh, keep it simple. And uh, when it came time to uh, say, you know, how should you behave given these avalanche conditions, uh, you need to tell people that, uh, for example, south face facing slopes below timberline are absolutely safe. Go there. North facing slopes uh, above timberline are dangerous. Avoid that if you can. So uh, there, there is an art form uh, to uh, giving people advice as to how they should travel the backcountry. Mm -hmm. And Knox, how did your team grow um, in those early years? How was how Talk about the process of of finding other forecasters, and and I'm sure you know financial budgets began to right. grow. Talk about some of the growth in your in your forecaster group, and then also the reach that the CAIC was able to to um, reach out to the public with. Um, initially, eighty uh, three when we began the CAIC. Uh, we had minimal money. Uh, the largest uh, funding came from the Forest Service, and a number of ski areas uh, gave us uh, an annual uh, donation, let's call it, uh, to keep us going. And the highway department, too, was a part of uh, the funding process. Well, as time went on, uh, I mean, we were we, being the forecasters, were strapped for money, but a really uh, horrible event uh, happened in uh, March of 1992 when two uh, highway department plow drivers mountain pass, one survived, one was killed. Before uh, 1992, the uh, CDOT, Colorado Department of Transportation, gave us a small amount of money, small being uh, less than 50000 and uh, we would report uh, uh, information to them. When the plow driver was killed in an avalanche in March of 92, CDOT realized it had a bigger problem than, uh, than they had thought. And it wasn't just danger to the public, it was danger to own uh, personnel. So we entered into a contract with CDOT and instantly uh, the donation or annual uh, contribution from CDOT to CAIC went from 50 to a couple of hundred thousand dollars. We were able to expand the forecasting uh, that the CAIC was doing. It was now 50% uh, for backcountry users, 
and 50% for highway safety. And that's the way it's it's been ever since. And it's one CAIC unique in that uh, funding for highways and responsibility to highway safety is every much as big as it is to backcountry skiers, uh, snowmobilers, etc. Knox, what were some of the growing pains that went along with uh, uh, such a big, fast expansion of your program? Uh, <laughs> well, one of the growing pains you would uh, understand would be that CDOT, uh, since they were giving us half of our budget, really wanted to have uh, uh, somewhat uh, control over operations. Mm. And they dictated, and that was fine with us, the offices around the state that we need, would need to uh, create. And there were several. Uh, one in uh, Summit County, uh, which is right in the middle of uh, the North and Central Mountains. And that's where uh, I-70 goes through. A second office uh, in the Red Mountain Pass area, that office was in Silverton. A third office uh, over uh, in the Wolf Creek Pass area. And then a fourth one uh, in the Aspen area uh, for the various highways over there. So uh, they re really expanded our operation and told us the hot spots. And uh, we were, I think we got, we, our partnership has worked excellent. Uh, ever since 93. Yeah, it certainly is a unique relationship between the the, the backcountry and the Highway Forecast Center, and I'm sure it, it's mutually beneficial to, to both sub-program of the CAIC. Well, and Caleb, since I left, uh, the Avalanche Center has uh, gr grown quite a bit under Ethan Green, the new director. Uh, when I left, uh, we had, uh, I think, 12, occasionally some years, 13 employees. And now they're up to around 18 or 19 forecasters. And uh, they there's a friends association that uh, helps fund uh, all of this additional growth. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, every Avalanche Center that I'm aware of these days does such a great job of of community outreach and, and engagement, especially through social media. I think that's one of the, perhaps one of the most significant changes over time is just the flow of the information yep. to the public and the immediate information and, and crowdsourced information sharing that happens through social media. Um, care to comment on that and, and, and kind of thinking back to the early days, how, how different things are now? Well, things are so different now, and uh, w one thing that uh, really has changed uh, the way the Avalanche Center operates is uh, the use uh, that everybody has cell phones now. Mm -hmm. And so it, uh, it's important uh, if people could immediately call from the backcountry if they could get out with their cell phone and report avalanches to the Avalanche Center, the Avalanche Center could then very quickly 
respond uh, back by alerting the public of an avalanche that had, had occurred in the last few hours and had caught people. So the amount of information coming in uh, became so much greater and it wasn't just through the normal channels. It wasn't uh, uh, from observers and offices and so on. It was from individuals. And so uh, to respond to that, the Avalanche Center had to grow and it has done so. And I think is doing an excellent job of keeping current. And I, by current, I mean like within hours of uh, alerting the public of dangerous situations. So Knox, given all the technology we have at our fingertips for weather forecasting, data collection and sharing, and current backcountry equipment technology being more efficient than ever, what are a couple of things that we could be reminded of from a more simple time when the task was just the same as it is now? Well, I think that uh, most people, uh, they, they realize that technology in the form of ever skis, snow, uh, cell phones, et cetera, uh, has really improved their life. And with the growth of snowmobiles, taking people further and deeper into the backcountry, they can reach more avalanche terrain. It seems to me that most of these recreational types know the need to get uh, an education to go along uh, with uh, just, uh, you know, improve their skill, skill level, I guess is what I want to say. And I don't see that technology has made things any worse. Um, on, a, on one hand, it's, it's made it better. The fact that people can get messages while in the field of maybe a change in danger level or an accident that might be in their mountain range that they're in. And I know that CAIC has been doing that to collect field data immediately and to respond by sending out texts uh, to people uh, on the list that they can uh, know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um I guess sometimes I feel like and the reason I ask this question to you is that, that I feel like sometimes there's there's an information overload and especially at the maybe you might say the beginner intermediate backcountry users bandwidth is perhaps pinged out right and and with the more information, yep. I think it's easy to just forget the basics and, and, and well, maybe the, maybe what I'm thinking of is that the, the biggest issue is the social pressures that come along with social media and all of this information that's being shared. So the, on the one side, as you said, we have all this great data and warning systems are in place to tweet or, post on social media when natural avalanches are happening or human triggered avalanches have, have happened, which is going to increase the awareness of the backcountry users. That's great. But the, the other side of that coin is the sharing of social media, um, uh, of increasing the stoke, right? Just kind of fueling the fire right. of maybe potentially rash decision-making based on uh, scarcity or just 
social pressures to impress? Well, avalanche education remains as important as it ever was uh, because the physics of avalanches haven't changed, but our lives have because of the tools that we have to get through life on a daily basis. The uh, improvement in ski technologies, flipboards, uh, snowmobiles, and so on means that more people are being exposed to avalanche danger. And without education, they're going to be at risk. And so you can teach uh, the use of uh, beacons, probe shovels, da 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 da, but without education to be able to read the terrain, to take your own data, whether it's snow pits or just observations or small uh, tests uh, on skis uh, or a snowmobile. Um, I think we can keep the uh, fatality and the accident rate at, uh, uh, I, I hate to say reasonable, we can't keep everybody safe, mm -hmm. but uh, keep the number of accidents to a minimum uh, despite the fact that more people are out there. And it's up on the individual to know that they need an education in addition to the gadgets and gear that they're, they have access to. And I think, uh, you know, it's, a, it's pretty amazing how many resources we have um, regarding avalanche education, whether it's, it's, it's courses through providers, which, you know, we're filling more avalanche courses than ever these days, um, coupled with online resources. Um, I mean, the, the information is out there. And, and as you said, it's up to the individual to, to become a lifelong learner of snow and avalanches if, if you wish to recreate or work in this arena. Um, so that, that is certainly a great point back to the basics with education and committing your, committing that, that lifelong learning and finding mentors is so important, isn't it? Um, one of the ways that I feel like I, I learn the best is from learning, from hearing stories of other people, um, unfortunately, sometimes in accidents or fatalities. Talk a little bit about the snowy torrents. What is the snowy torrents and, and what's, what has been your part in creating those volumes of snowy torrents? Uh, yes, the Snowy Torrance is a series of books on avalanche accidents. And there have been five uh, of these books uh, written uh, up to date. Uh, I have uh, done three of them, uh, but starting with a major accident in 1910, the one that killed, uh, gosh, 97 people when a train was knocked off a track and the state of Washington, uh, up to the present, um, there are file cabinets galore on uh, accidents. The idea of the snowy torrents is to take real people, real situations, and tell the story of what they were intending to do, how they got in trouble, and how their uh, companions, if it took that, or rescuers, if it took that, to get these people uncovered uh, from the, the avalanche. It's a teaching book in that a lot of people will read 
a story and they might say, whoa, that sounds like me and my friends. And look what happened to them. So uh, I think uh, the Snowy Torrance project uh, has been uh, very helpful in saving lives, or at least in raising awareness. Because rather than sitting in the class and just hearing about what uh, you might run into and how you should travel, read about what other people have experienced, both good and bad, that had good outcomes and bad outcomes. So I, I like the Snowy Torrance Project a lot. Well, thank you very much for your tireless work with with uh, authoring and co-authoring those volumes. What uh, it, I, I believe we're you're currently up to two thousand four, and there's a bit of a lag in the in the editing and publishing of these books, right? That's correct. Yeah, up till two thousand four. Uh, we being authors, we should let about a, at least a 10-year period go by. Uh, we could see ourselves writing a report on a, a, an accident that might still have uh, some sort of litigation going on. And here we would be uh, called in to uh, <laughs> be part of a, some sort of trial. Uh, so let things calm down and then write up uh, the accident um, based on the facts. And if you do that, then people will say, these are real people, could have been me. And so I, I like the Snowy Torrance Project a lot. I think it's one of the best things the uh, Colorado Avalanche, uh, the, uh, let's say, American Avalanche community has come up with. Yeah, and certainly if if there are folks listening out there that have not picked up a copy of the Snowy Torrance, highly, highly recommended. Uh, so Knox, in addition to all the work that you've done with the CAIC, um, being author, co-author, and editor of the Snowy Torrance, you've also had quite a bit of involvement with the American Avalanche Association, um, especially starting to you know, be, being one of the founding members of that organization and then eventually the president of the association. Talk about the inception of the, the American Avalanche Association. We followed the lead of uh, the model that the Canadian Avalanche Association uh, put together. Um, until the AAA, American Avalanche Association, was founded, uh, there are just uh, all of these various forecast offices, uh, forest service offices involved, uh, but there is no place where people could come together to uh, you know, just work together. And so the AAA, American Avalanche Association, was founded uh, this, would have been, I can't remember a year, but it would have been back in the 90s. Uh, we already had a, uh, a newspaper, if you want to call it that, monthly. It was called the Avalanche Review, started by a lady named Sue Ferguson. And the AAA, American Avalanche Association, took that over uh, as uh, the, the written uh, voice uh, for um, avalanche uh, knowledge, education, uh, events, that were going on in the U.S. And so it's just uh, the glue that holds uh, everybody together, and I think it's working really good. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so would you say maybe the Avalanche Notes were the precursor to the Avalanche Review as we know it today? Not really, um, because the Avalanche Notes really focused on what had gone on only in the last month mm-hmm. with real data to back it up. Mm-hmm. The uh, Avalanche Review had a much broad, broader um, circulation. Uh, and uh, gave uh, people just to write their own stories. Uh, And so uh, everyone enjoyed when the next issue of the Avalanche Review came around to see what was in there. They had no idea what it would be. Sure. Knox, over the years, you've acquired many different experiences. These experiences have probably not always been easy. but certainly lessons have been learned from them. At the time of your retirement, if you had any advice for your younger self as a avalanche forecaster, what would it have been? You know, I found that a, a very interesting <laughs> question that you uh, posed. And um, wow, and it really made me think, what would I have liked uh, to have heard? Um, I. I think one thing that uh, would have uh, really been helpful is for somebody to tell me, okay, Knox, here you are, 30 years old. You don't know it yet, but you've been handed uh, a lifelong opportunity. So don't blow it. Uh, Be mature. And uh, just think of it as providing a service uh, that will perhaps save lives, and certainly uh, raise education on a problem that uh, a lot of recreationalists uh, are uh, dealing with. And also, uh, it's a big world out there, but you've been handed a chance to be a big fish in a small pond, so go with it. Well, I was... When I got the job, I didn't know it, but I was handed uh, a lifelong opportunity to reach out to an awful lot of people that were uh, operating very isolated in very isolated places. And therefore, I had the chance to be a big fish in this small pond of people out there gathering data and do it right. Don't blow it. Uh, Serve their needs and turn it into something big. Well, from my perspective, Knox, and and maybe this is true for you looking back as well, um, seems like you were a pretty big fish in a pretty big pond (laughs) and and have made quite a big impact. So um, (laughs) much respect and thanks for that. So Knox, I was hoping maybe you could recount a a pivotal story within your career, a highlight or a proud moment or, or, or some time that, that you learned a lesson that you never that you never forgot or will forget. Right. Uh, I will recount uh, an incident that I was part of. I forget the year. It was the early '90s. I know that the CAIC did an annual course for the Colorado Mountain Club, and. Uh, we did a, a, it was a week-long course, really, uh, several nights of classroom, and then a full field day. 
that we usually did in the uh, Berthoud Pass area of Colorado. Um, on this particular day, uh, I was, um, uh, there were like 30 students. We had uh, four or five instructors, and uh, we would just take these people on a tour. My group had limited skills. Uh, all were on skis, so we could travel, but uh, we had to be careful where we went. As I was talking to the group, asking them what they wanted to do, one pointed across the valley and said, that looks like a, a nice slope over there. Maybe we can get some turns in. And I looked at the slope and thought, I think you're right. So off we went. Uh, we got close, and there was an area, big flat area, where there had been a blowdown of trees. And, and tree limbs, trunks were all covering the ground with snow on top of it. For us to cross 100 yards of that probably took half an hour, 45 minutes, because people were falling through, they're coming off their skis and whatnot. But eventually we got through that. I got to the slope that we thought about skiing, and I looked at it and I said, oh crap, this is an avalanche slope. I scoped it, it was 32 degrees in steepness, and I, I was, everybody, nobody wanted to go back through all that horrible stuff we'd been through. So I said, okay, we're gonna go at this as carefully as we can. From where we're standing on the edge of the slope, uh, about 50 yards out, 100 feet, 150 feet out, was an island of trees. And I said, okay, we're gonna cross this 50 yards here, one at a time, and uh, we're going to reevaluate when we get over there because the slope looks shallower on the far side of those trees. I sent the first person out, crossed the 50 yards, was in the island of trees. I sent the second person out. He too made it across. Before I could send a third person out, we all heard this tremendous boom and the avalanche broke literally five feet in front of us and 50 feet above us. And it was a big avalanche. It was about three foot deep crown, came down uh, in chunks, went down into the timber, took down trees. And I was sweating BBs because there was a powder cloud and I could not see the two people that I had sent out already. Turns out, uh, the trees did their job, the avalanche went around them, and they weren't even hit. Well, uh, we all turned around and came back. Uh, other groups in our uh, school saw this avalanche from across the valley. They were coming over. Uh, we made it out, but that was the biggest um, single mistake that I ever made in my career. And had somebody been killed, my career would have been over. But I dodged that bullet. Uh, I like to tell this story because it means even people who are so supposed to be experts make mistakes.
And so I got away with one and that one stayed with me forever. Is it fair to say that if the, um, the, the section of blowdown wasn't there, you all would have just turned around and exactly egressed the way you came <laughs> uh, in. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my situation, what I was facing, I'll bet, uh, dozens of people that I've written up in the snowy torrents went through stuff like that, made a bad decision and it ended up being an accident that appeared in the snowy torrents. Yeah, I look back, if we could have turned around and, and uh, had some alternative, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. But I thought, if we can cross this 50-foot section, uh, we will be okay, because then we can go on to shallower snow on the other side. We couldn't, we couldn't go up to the ridge because there was a big cornice up there. So anyway, I made a bad mistake. And... Um, I share that with you, your listeners, and so on, because even experts can really go sideways at times. Well, Knox, thanks for sharing that one. And and it certainly is a, a, a horrible feeling to feel like you've painted yourself into a corner. I use that term a lot and and I've uh, I think we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. If if we would have had an easy trek to back out of where we were, that would have been the easy solution to our dilemma. Right. Um, Knox, any any sage advice, any other sage advice for the the budding avalanche <laughs> professional out there or or the recreational um, backcountry user? Well, get an avalanche education. Find out who is teaching in your area and uh, Take, take a course that puts you on snow from a uh, qualified instructor. Uh, ARE, A-I-A-R-E, uh, has a lot of good instructors. So do your local avalanche centers, wherever you might be in the country. Get the education first and uh, then expand from there. Hmm. Um, I, I'd probably add to that just f finding mentors, right? Just surrounding yourself with people that are um, have a similar risk tolerance and and a willingness to learn. That's really true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, yeah, being compatible in a group uh, almost always is a good thing. If you have uh, some outliers, those who want to be more extreme, or those who want home the earliest inconvenience uh there's middle ground and you want everyone or return or change uh your plan for the day altogether right Knox, uh, a, a listener question here from good friend brendan cronin he's a he's a highway forecaster on teton pass um and he almost always poses this question to my guests when i do open up um questions to to the to the listener population um he always wonders and i think this is a great question why are there so few female avalanche forecasters your take on that question um the short answer is that the pool of qualified applicants for a job uh, has always been far more men than women the reason for that is that applicants come from oh, ski patrols or guiding companies 
uh, and maybe a few universities, Montana State University comes to uh, mind, where uh, people get their education. Most of the people that go through patrols, guiding companies, and uh, the university are male. So uh, that's the way it is. For me, gender by itself was never a factor when I was in the business and needing new staff members. And I would encourage uh, more women, if they are uh, interested in the business, to get a strong uh, education uh, and then put their resume out there. They ought to be considered equally uh, among, uh, let's say, equally uh, educated men. Mm-hmm. So I, I have, that's my answer. I think it's just the pool has more men than women in it. And maybe that's changing the now um, than it was think, even in the I 90s. I think it, yeah. Yeah, uh, but because I I see more women in uh, leadership roles, uh, the editor of the Avalanche Review is a woman, um, and so I I would hope uh, women would uh, yeah get the education and that will open the door to jobs. Right, I think it's happening, but but it's certainly a good question and and one that we'll keep bringing up to the community and and gathering different opinions on. So, um, right. Knox, thank you very much for your time and and sharing your perspective, your career history, and your perspective of of the state of the Avalanche community at this time. Um, I, I really appreciate all the work that you've done throughout your career. Like I said in the beginning, to pave the way, you you really were a pivotal person to pave the way to to where we stand today, um, and and quite a legacy you've left in your wake. Well, Caleb, thanks for the kind words, and I appreciate you asking me, and I appreciate uh, spending this time. I wish our uh, <laughs> our glitches and getting the sound to be good hadn't happened, because yeah, it just makes it awkward on your part. Well, that's okay; it'll smooth out, and and I think the important parts are there. Before we leave, Knox, I was hoping you might say a couple words about Art. Art passed away in July, I believe. Um, and so yeah. just to maybe a, a few words about one of your mentors and, and collaborators throughout your career, friend. Uh, yeah, Art, Art Judson was a true mentor. Uh, I had never met him uh, until I'd heard uh, about a job opening uh, uh, in Fort Collins where I was. and and. Uh, He's the one who had faith in me and uh, got the uh, got the put the job in my hands. His guidance uh, all along the way. Uh, he was mentoring me, and I appreciated that. Um, and he and I were very good friends for a long time. Then, when the, his career at the Forest Service was cut short, and so on, um, he during it. He still wanted to be a forecaster, and I don't blame him. Uh, but we were good friends, and he was uh, the guy who got me started in the business, and I'll forever thank him for that. Mm, indeed. Um, all right, Knox. Well, I hope to see you again out on the snow soon. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> really, we all bump into each other on a lift at uh, Mammoth Mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's where we we met for the first time. So, um, again, thank you for the, your time, Knox, and and appreciate all your hard work, and and hope you have a a nice rest of your day out there in Colorado. Yeah, will do. Thanks a lot, Caleb. Take care. All right. Cheers. Hey, thanks everybody for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. I'm sure you enjoyed that one. I know I did. Well, we are starting to wrap things up over here at the Avalanche Hour podcast. This is my last episode for the season. We do have two more episodes that will be released in June. Um, One hosted by Wesley Gregg and another by Dom Baker. And so we're really excited for those. Um, We hope you've enjoyed the variety of different hosts that have been highlighted on the Avalanche Hour podcast. Uh, You can definitely expect more of that in the future. Um, But if you have thoughts on the show, please drop us a line. You can email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out on the socials. We are at theavalanchehourpodcast. Please give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend to start listening. They can go and and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform they listen to podcasts on. And give us a a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you are really enjoying the show. We we love to read those reviews, and um, it helps us out immensely. I do have to apologize. I've been pretty bad at correspondence, and so I know some folks have have reached out and I probably haven't gotten back to you yet. It's certainly on my list of things to do. Um, and so keep those emails coming. I do read them. It's just, uh, I, I, uh, I'm a little bit slow to respond sometimes. So apologize for that. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. For any of your illustration needs, head on over to MikeT.com and check out his work. Music on today's track was written and performed by Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.